Australian author and columnist Clementine Ford has written about gender inequality in her books Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, also a memoir, How We Love. She is fierce and funny and takes no prisoners. Her latest book is just as provocative and polemical. She wants to end marriage, which she calls a corrupt and oppressive institution which has enslaved women sexually, reproductively, financially and domestically. The book is called I Don't, The Case Against Marriage, and Clementine Ford is with us now. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm very well. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm very well. It's a little bit earlier for me here than it is for you there, so it's a bit, it being Saturday morning, me Sorry. being the kind of mother who has weekends off. And, Sorry. Um, um... <laughs> normally no, you'd no, be, no, no. It's, it's wonderful. Normally you'd be here. lolling around in bed drinking your first coffee of the morning. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful to, to be completely untethered of responsibilities on a Saturday morning and just to be able to loll with a coffee? I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Listen, there's so much evidence, you say, of the detrimental, suffocating impact marriage has on women's lives. Give me some of that evidence contemporarily. In a contemporary sense, and this will be familiar, I'm sure, to some of your listeners, we know already that statistically speaking, women do the bulk of the unpaid care work, the unpaid domestic labour, they carry the burden of the mental load. And we also know that statistically speaking, the most dangerous place for a woman is her own home if there is an adult male there. I mean, I, I'm sorry to put it bluntly to your listeners, I'm sure that there are many wonderful men listening, but... Statistically speaking, the most dangerous thing that a woman can do for her own safety is to is to partner with a man and live with him. So you're just um, using marriage as a as a as a proxy word, Clementine, because obviously you don't need to be married to somebody to be a punching bag for them. Well, no, that's it's it's sort of a proxy word, except that marriage formalizes the relationship in the eyes of the government, and it's more financially punitive to lead on the ba- leave on the basis that um, I'm sure the same thing in. New Zealand is true that you have to pay to end a marriage. You have to pay to get married. People spend in Australia, the average cost of a wedding is $36,000 and the average length of a marriage is 8.4 years. So for many people, they're liable considering 60% of couples here take out a loan in order to get married and pay for their wedding. And one fifth of couples pay for the entire thing on their credit card. Many people are liable to still be paying off their wedding long after they've paid for their divorce. It's a very strange thing, the Berg wedding, and it seems to have resurged in popularity. Yeah, and I think that um, so the the what people think of as the traditional wedding is actually not that old. It it sort of when you think about the reason why people might get married in big lavish weddings now, so often it's so that they can share the photographs on social media. It's about keeping up with the Joneses. For a you know, since tracing back to Queen Victoria's wedding there is a sense of people being able to be royalty for a day. So the middle class in particular being able to mimic the lifestyles of the rich and famous, the lifestyles of the aristocracy. If we look at Queen Victoria as the original kind of influencer, maybe, you know, if unwillingly, the reason that so many, the reason that we associate white dresses with a wedding now is because Queen Victoria wore a white dress to marry um, Prince Albert. And the reason that she wore a white dress was in part because she wanted to to distinguish her marriage to him as something separate from 
a royal protocol because, you know, normally uh, royals would have worn the purple robes of state. But Queen Victoria was deeply in love with Albert, who was her cousin also, and she wanted it to be clear that she was marrying him as a woman, not as a monarch. And she chose a white dress. You know, the young queen wanted to symbolise her virginity to um to Albert and to the to the people watching but also in, in a practical sense she was you know as the monarch she was overseeing a a textile industry in the UK that had been decimated by the industrial revolution so there were all these artisanal textile workers who were rapidly falling out of work because because the machines had basically industrialized the industry and so she she wanted to showcase the textile work of her people so she chose a um you know a satin cream dress made in the Spitalfields, and she had a lace veil made out of honiton lace in in devon and the most um effective color to show off the the intricacies of lace is white and so the queen wore a white beautiful white wedding dress and the news of it sort of spread rapidly because the printing press had also industrialized the way that we could share news quickly and it, there's even a, um, a testimony from Charles Dickens at the time who observed to, I think, wrote a letter to the newspaper about how all everyone was in a tizzy about the young queen's wedding. And, you know, he, he sort of developed a crush on her himself and she had a stalker who was writing to her. Every generation obviously thinks that it's the, it's the newest, most modern generation of its time. But when this was all happening, Everyone was very swept up in the fever of this big royal wedding. Uh And what it did was it prompted, you know, all of the kind of the non-royals around this situation, but who had a little bit of money behind them to mimic the queen in her wedding and in her fripperies. wedding. And for, for many women, but prior to this, women often wore black to get married because they wore their best dress and your best dress was something that was in dark colors so that you could cover any stains and to the white dress as well if we think about weddings as a symbol of class status and so so often the big lavish wedding is about symbolizing your class status as well for a lot of these young women to have a white wedding dress that could only be worn once and then put away in a box as a you know a keepsake for a daughter later on it indicated the kind of class status where you might have a lady's maid or you had the you had the economic ability to buy a dress that you would only wear once. So we can sort of trace this this history and this tradition not very far back really, but we can see now it playing out still in social media where people compete to, you know, who's had the who's had the the most beautiful wedding. We've got socialites and Hollywood stars and celebrities who very generously invite us the mere plebeian public to come into their wedding via photographs and feel just like we can be there a little bit. It's like I describe it in the book as you're being invited to come in and and look at the skirts of the rich but not touch them. Gia Tolentino wrote an essay in The New Yorker called I The Dread and um, you quote her as suggesting that Western culture has been taught to view it as traditional but basically it's quite recent capitalist invention and I take that point Um, it's a very interesting thing so okay I'm going to eschew the trappings of the wedding and the cost of it and I'm going to a registry office or a beach Mm -hmm. and I'm going to have a low-key wedding with no fuss and just my dog in attendance you got a problem with that 
I mean, look, I think that that's if you're if, if I can't stop you from getting married, then maybe what I could encourage people to do is to not waste so much money on their wedding because most people who get married will confirm that they don't really remember the wedding day and they didn't probably really enjoy their wedding day that much because there's so much stress that goes into it. But a low-key wedding, I think that there are still these things where people say, well, I did it differently. You know, I didn't, I didn't buy into it. Ours was different. I was a cool bride. I wasn't, I didn't get swept up in all of that nonsense, but you're still, you are still signing the paper and you're still giving and handing over to the government, this right to legislate your relationship in Australia you don't really get any more rights for being married than you would for being de facto. Do you not? Because I mean, there are I, lots of... Because I think some people would argue that there are more protections for the woman in a marriage or post-marriage than there are in a de facto relationship. I th- I, do, I don't see that as being true. And I think that in, in a de facto relationship here, there's still the same financial separation after a separation. You don't need to, you need to have been together, I think, for two years to have to essentially be considered a de facto relationship. But what makes it more difficult is that it's not just the cost of leaving a marriage because there is so much status and um, when when we launched the book in Sydney the other week and Yumi Steins described having gone to a wedding when she was young and she she said it's it's as if there's like a a magic fairy dust that's sprinkled around, around the wedding day where it invites everyone to be really deeply invested in your relationship. So if you've been together with someone for a while and you announce that you're getting married, it doesn't matter if you've been with them for 10 or 15 years, people will fall over. Oh, amazing. That's so wonderful. It's the best news ever. It's like, (laughs) why are people that invested in other people's relationships for a start? But I think that you could, you can make the argument that when you feel like you've stood up in front of your family and your friends and your community, and you've, you've, you've gotten married, that there is a, there's an invisible social compulsion that makes you want to or makes you it more difficult for you to leave that marriage because you feel like you're letting people down or you feel embarrassed about it. Or you might it, have to give feel, the presents back. <laughs> or you feel like, well, who, who's going to want me now is something I hear a lot from women and I hate that. I hate that women are out there saying, who's going to want me now? As if, A, the purpose in life, although this is what we're told, this it's the success of this um, the success of this PR machine, the purpose in life is for women to be wanted by someone as, you know, as opposed to wanting ourselves, as opposed uh-huh. to cr- creating and carving a life out for ourselves. And also that this would be a reason to to not leave a marriage that maybe at best is just unhappy and unfulfilling and at worst is actually punitive, punitive and exploitative and potentially abusive that there is a fear that some women have had drummed into them that at least it's better than being alone. And that's one of the things really that I w- I'm trying to get to the heart of, heart of in the book is, I, I, you know, I say in the beginning of the, in the introduction, that it's not an attack on people who are married. It's not a criticism even of people who are married. It's not like a sneering kind of me on high saying, if you got married, you're a big dum-dum. I, like the, the machine is very, very persuasive and it's been in operation for thousands of years. It's very difficult to disentangle yourself from the message. But one of the things that I'm really trying to get at is why for women in particular, are they seen as being no other viable alternatives to it? Women are either pitied openly for being unmarried. We're, we're also mocked for wanting to stay single. You know, this idea of the, I talk about the cat lady trope in the book that, 
if women grow old alone, what a terrible tragedy. And also if they do it by choice, what a horrible monster she is that she's going to grow old alone and, you know, enjoy your cats, enjoy having nothing as you age. And I find that incredibly offensive and problematic. And I think that there's something that we should rail against is this idea that women without men around or without even a partner, whether or not they're a man or not, around to qualify us that just by ourselves alone, it's a wasted life. And that's really, oh, Miss War, sorry, I just forgot forgot that we were live on radio. Yes. That's a really, a really um, awful thing to say about women and it's an awful thing to do to women and it's it's something that has entrapped women over the years because they have believed and bought into the, as I said, very persuasive lie that this is what the purpose of life is. And there, there is many a woman, if they're truly honest with themselves, that they said yes to a, pro, a proposal or they embarked on that kind of relationship with a man because they reached an age in their life and they thought no other options would come to them. All right, you know the kind of texts I'm getting in. Here's one. I'm I'm sure I can imagine exactly. Well, this is a free hit for you, right? It goes, how do you explain the fact that most old societies have conducted weddings for centuries now? Over to you, Clementine. Firstly, they haven't conducted weddings in the way that we understand weddings to have been conducted. And in fact, the church has only been involved in uh, like sort of legally overseeing weddings since about the 1400s. But the difference between historical marriage and marriage today, um, leaving aside the fact that women had had very few, if any, rights in historical marriage and that for so many women, their marriages were used as a, as a weapon of diplomacy and um, political uh, capital. Marriages historically were for the purpose or were done for the purpose of building an empire of a family, not this sort of nuclear family model that we have now where people get married and they go and silo themselves off and live in their suburban white picket fence house trope or or their inner city apartment, whatever you want to call it. And they raise their children together and the woman statistically and primarily speaking is the one who handles all of the... Excuse me. Sorry, it's a bit pay fever here today. Handles all of the... um, I've never, I do not believe that anybody has ever sneezed during an on-air interview that I've ever done in my well, 570 you, year career. So well done. Kim. I've if given that to you as a, as a, as a gift, gift for, Thank your, you. for your wonderful career in radio. Thank you. Um, uh, so, you know, originally speaking, the idea of kinship building and empire building was very important. Obviously, it was important economically. It was important for the safety of the group. If we even trace historical human origins back to nomadic nomadic tribes, marriages and, and, and or the melding of two people together. I mean, obviously, there was no state involved in original historical marriages, but the melding of two people together was about growing a tribe, making it safer for a tribe, um, bringing together the the tools and skills and also assets that two tribes may have to, to make a safer environment. So I think in some sense, if people wanted to think about, well, what is, how could we make marriage better? I actually think that to reimagine and not even as a romantic sort of thing, but to reimagine 
or to understand that the success that we have in the world as humans is through relationality. Carol, Gill- Carol Gilligan talks about, you know, the relational origins of humans being the success of our species, not this idea of us all in competition with each other. So if we would actually sort of think, well, um, maybe women who want to have children but who haven't found a suitable person to do that with or or understand the risks of what that means to to be in that scenario with someone else maybe they have children in groups of friends where they raise their children together single mothers living together um people creating communities together to mimic the original intention of the success of marriage which is to grow families you know um people now make jokes about not wanting to have anything to do with their in-laws but originally and his you know, certainly at least a thousand years ago, people got married to build their in-laws, to build the access to the in-laws that they had. Mm. And when you think about the practical reality of that now, one of the many complaints that women have about, um, and I really hate this, you know, this this lament that women can't have it all because firstly, no one in the world can have it all or should have it all. The idea that we can all have every single thing that we want is anathema actually to the human experience, but it's used as a way to discredit the feminist movement as if it somehow promised women that they could have it all when no one ever talks about the fact that what it all in that scenario is men very frequently do get to have, they get to have families and careers and a woman at home looking after them and the safety and security of what those things mean for them. A man's career is benefited by having a family, whereas a woman we know suffers the motherhood penalty and the motherhood trap. So if we were to reimagine what a family would could look like and what a broader community understanding of those relationships could look like, then we could actually increase the security and happiness and well-being of women in general. I am hearing from people who have had, you know, very happy marriages and they share the tasks equally and so on and so forth. But actually... Those are outweighed, and this is not a scientific survey, by people who say, um, yes, you are speaking the truth. And uh, we lived together for years and 16 years, and then we got married. And the difference in how I, as a woman, was treated was quite different, which is interesting, and I have heard that before. I wonder why that happens. You live in a de facto relationship for years, you decide to stand up and make your public commitment and something changes. There's an elevation of the married state to, and this is what I was talking about with the social class status of marriage and how it differs from being in a de facto relationship, is that there's there's a reward attached to it and it's a very superficial reward. It's, 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 a, it's an illusion of respect that women in particular receive in the world for being married And the fact that that illusion of respect exists, I think speaks really to one of the, one of the arguments that I make for why marriage is so dangerous and, um, you know, or, or even just minimizing for women is that it's assumed to be the the greatest thing that we can do. You know, if you think about the, the celebrations that are attached even to wedding announcements that people are getting engaged, there's so much more, um, effusive than the celebrations that people, or the congratulations people might offer if a woman, you know, is to get her PhD or to have had an incredibly successful career in radio or to, um, you know, have written a book or to have done anything in her life outside of attaching herself to somebody else. The, the rewards and the accolades for that 
are muted. Whereas for a woman to be married, it's still seen as elevating her somehow. And I think in a way as well, it's it's an unburdening for people of the the sense that they might have that, oh God, she's if unless she gets married now, she's gonna be alone forever. People are very troubled by the idea of single women. But and also single men. That we should explore. I mean, men who, I don't, who don't marry, who've never married, who live alone, they are also pitied, do you not think? I don't think that they're pitied in the same way. I think that, unfortunately, the reality as well that we know is that despite all of the, despite all of the threats that women receive that if they stay single, <laughs> excuse me, if they stay single forever, <laughs> then they'll be old and alone and... Sorry, the pollen here is... Look, it was a gift, Clementine, but now it's a curse. It's Pull unreal. yourself together. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, we know that men who, who are old and alone suffer a... <clears throat> sorry, suffer an immense amount of loneliness. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they're so desperate to get women married off is because we relieve the burden of loneliness for older men. And we also, in relieving the burden of loneliness for older men, we relieve the responsibility of communities in the state to make sure that those men are taken care of. Um, men who are married live longer because they have women looking after them. They have women making sure that they're going to the doctor, they're having their health needs met, etc. They also tend to be happier. Whereas women who, women's happiness in married is very strongly connected to whether or not the marriage itself is happy. And again, I would say that there are some people, of course, who'd say, well, my, my marriage is very happy there's probably some things about their marriage that make them unhappy or that they wish would be different. Um, but then there's a lot of people who in their heart of hearts and maybe with the anonymity of the text line can admit, actually, I wish I hadn't done it. I'm, I'm not happy and I feel stuck and I feel invisible and I feel like I want different options for myself and I would have wanted different options for my children. And an exercise that I ask women to do quite often is to think back to their 16 year old self and the beautiful wide-eyed optimism that she had, the the dreams for her life, the imaginings that she thought of what her life would look like, and describe to her the person that you're with now. Describe to her your marriage. Describe to them how they treat to her how they treat you, and where you feel you are within it. But hang on. And if any part if they- of you, if any part of you feels ashamed of that description, or feels like you want to tell her don't do it if you feel like you want something better for her then that is a pretty good answer about the state of your marriage it's what you would want to tell your 16 year old self what you would want to either rush her into or save her from but if this wide-eyed 16 year old self existed at what point does the fairy tale yearning for the big white wedding kick in if not as a teenager Oh, I think that the the big fairy tale romance starts, or the yearning for that starts deliberately much younger than that. Well, exactly. What I'm so, how did the sixteen year olds emerge with such a clear eyed vision for their futures? Oh, because we've. I mean, we all the the fairy tale romance and the conditioning of that is very persuasive and very deliberate. And through the twentieth century, we can see how it's been applied. But we also have to remember that that the you know, the original fairy tales and the folk tales were very dark and the Disney's reimagining of them. The argument that I make in the book is that the, you know, Snow White comes out in 1937. Um, The next two, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, they come out in the 1950s. This is not in 
you know, dis- this is not to be disentangled from the political strides that women have made also at this time. So you've got a post-suffrage period where, as we know, the suffragettes were bombarded with the same level of ridicule and mockery that feminists at any point in history have been subjected to, which is that if you are a woman trying to battle for your political liberation and your political rights and there's something wrong with you, you're disgusting, you're depraved, you're unsexy, all of these labels that women get thrown at any time they dare to even think of themselves as being an independent human in the world. And in a post-suffrage period where the threat, particularly in a post-war period, where men came home from the war and they saw that all of their jobs actually could have been, were, were being handled pretty easily by the women who were doing their part for the war effort back at home. And then the women were shunted back into the kitchen because the men needed to go back to work. And there needed to be some kind of compulsion that told middle-class white women in particular, that this would be good for them. Because we have to also remember when people, you know, look back to the traditional marriage and they sort of idealise this idea of like the traditional, conventional, leave it to beaver style marriage that Stephanie Kuntz in her book Marriage of History calls the long decade, that it only really happened over a period of between around 1950 to 1965. It was, you know, very much aided by the post-war economic boom but it only applied to a certain kind of woman. It didn't apply to working class women. It didn't apply to women of colour. They they were always working and they continue to always work and they will, under this capitalist system, always be expected to work. You know, the- It applied to middle class white women who they needed, who the system needs to align itself with the structural powers of whiteness and capitalism and patriarchy by virtue of attaching ourselves to men so that we can say in part, we're supporting them as they go out and create and build the world. All right. But right now, in the modern world, the argument from another branch of feminism would be, if this is what I want, who is anyone to tell me I don't? If I want a white wedding, if I want to get dressed up, if I want to pretend to be traditional, anything I want, it's fine. It's my agency and I choose. What do you say to that? Well, what I would say is that I can't stop you from doing that. All I can do is offer ideas. And but how do you tell whether, whether it's agency? How do you tell whether it's agency or social deception? I think that's a self-deception and a delusion. In a, in a, in a world where you had no influence or no historical system influencing you towards that decision, you wouldn't spend that amount of money on a wedding. You wouldn't do it to compete with your friends or to to show off how important and special you are, to show off how valuable your spouse-to-be is because you've got this lavish wedding, you've got this big ring, so you you can say, well, I've got a good one. Um, but I think as well that we need to really dismantle this idea of choice being choice alone being the hallmark of what makes feminism. There are many things that we need and we absolutely must have choice in, in order to be liberated. We need choice when it comes to reproductive um, rights. We need choice when it comes to economics. We need choice when it comes to our own freedoms to use our bodies in which way we want to use them. But choice alone is not a marker of feminism. For me to say, well, I choose to go out and, you know, shop I choose to to spend all my money on fast fashion, for example. That's a choice that I could say that I make for myself, but it also requires the the economic oppression of a whole bunch of people in order for that choice to happen. We have to look at our choices as being 
are they really truly a choice that I need for my liberation in the world? Or is it something that I'm indulging in because of an individual desire to platform myself in the world? And to me, I think that feminism has to be a liberation project that is a collective work that's done collectively. And we need to move away from this idea of individual choices being in and of themselves, some kind of hallmark of feminism, because individuality is against the collective. And no, no one can be liberated if we don't work collectively and if we don't think about the needs of the collective. All right. I'm asking you this question because it goes to this uh, subject of agency that we are now talking about. You've spoken about using anti-aging treatments, in mm -hmm. part, you say, to deflect abuse online from men about your appearance. Simultaneously, you've also said, I don't care what men think about me. Mm -hmm. Can you hold those two things in your head at the same time? Well, that's a really great question. Can I hold them in my head at the same time? I think I can make justifications for my for them for myself. I think that we all make justifications for things. And, and in as much as I level that argument about the individualism to other people, I must apply it to myself and and understand and recognise and be honest about the fact that sometimes I let my own political side down. I think that there is, and maybe this will be familiar to some of your listeners, that I don't care whether or not random men on the internet approve of me and I don't care whether or not they find me attractive. I've had enough experience over the years, as I'm sure you have, being a prominent woman in the, you know, in the culture that you live in, that there, there is a particular kind of way that men in particular like to talk to you to try and shut you up. And yeah, but I don't care. And whether or not true or not. And I don't know. No, but, but, you, but you cannot. I'm not going to get care, the anti-aging. you can also say. I'm not. I'm well, not going to. you gonna... can also say, you can also say if anything that you can do that will just confuse them enough to, no. I mean, what, what I can say that is obvious is that what I receive now from men is very often um, just comments that I'm crazy and deranged and f fewer comments than I got when I was in my thirties, which was that I only think this way because I'm hideously ugly. Um, and I also think that we have to, you know, have to be really honest about, am I compelled to do it because I'm getting older? And, no, but hang on. And there just is an understanding just, that culture hates old women. Hang on for a sec. If men have now stopped abusing you for your appearance because you've, I don't know, scrubbed up well, and they're now accusing you of being crazy and deranged, mm -hmm. the logical question is, are you going to get a pill now to make you less crazy and deranged? Do you know what I mean? You're really undermining. You are undermining Clementine. Your whole argument by saying that we need to respond to what men think of us. I'm not saying anyone needs to respond to what men think of think of us. I'm saying that this is how I respond to living in my life and living in a world where I. And uh, where I have to navigate that, I don't care what other women do about it. I'm not saying that other women should respond in that way. I'm not saying that you should respond in that way. If you don't want to do that, then that's entirely up to you. I'm not saying that that's, that that's something that is necessary. I'm saying that that's a choice that I made. And in part, that's the, that's why I made it. And in other, 
in other reasons, I made it because of vanity. Let's be honest about that too. There's, it's okay to be vain. It's not maybe defensible, defensible, but it's not a crime to be vain. Like we all make choices about how we look in the world and how we, how we present in the world. And we also live in a world which is incredibly ageist. So all of these influences, I'm as subject to them as anyone else. All you can do is put an argument out there to, you know, prompt people to think about it. But I'm not certainly not saying, well, all women need to think about how they can defend themselves against men's criticisms. And this is what you should do. This is just what I've chosen to do privately, personally in my life. And that I've talked about it openly because one of the other things I hate is when women pretend they haven't done these things because it plays into this idea of, of a natural sort of, um, and even taking it aside from the cosmetics or whatever, this idea that somehow you've just naturally woken up into good fortune because you are morally at your heart a better person. And that also ties back into the marriage, the marriage quandary, the, the construction in the Victorian era of the moral centre of the home, the angel of the house, which has in turn entrapped women into this idea of sacrificial love and having to give things up in order to prove their moral worth. I'm still trying to tease out the feminist argument. See, if you see someone, if you see a woman who looks really good for her age, you would rather she said, look, I've had treatment, rather than you thinking, oh, she's just lucky. But if she doesn't say she's had treatment and she has had treatment, she's selling out. If she has had treatment and says she's had treatment, she's not selling out. Is that the argument? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that if I that that would be what I would argue about the average woman on the street. I'm saying that I would argue. I would make that argument about someone who has a prominent platform and pretends somehow that this is just natural. Pretends like the Kardashians do. Well, I've never had anything done. That because that does have an impact on people. If you think that someone is just naturally, if someone is dishonest about the in the interventions that they may use and the expense that they may spend on these things, the money that goes into achieving these, you know, whether or not it's your face. I'm not really interested in continuing to talk about cosmetics. I'd rather talk about the book and about marriage, but whether or not it's about your face or about the lavish wedding that you have, that you've had, the ring that you've been given, that somehow there's a morality attached to these things, that you have them because you are morally better than other people, as opposed to the fact that you have been very privileged by the system that you live in. You're very privileged by the economics of your class. I would rather they be honest about that. But that's someone who has the capacity to influence an enormous amount of women. It's not someone who's just, you know, going about her day. Interesting email we've had from a marriage celebrant. And it says, in Ireland, this goes to your argument, I think, getting this interview back on the rails. In Ireland, when a couple marries... They get a proper tax break, i.e. a reward. She says, I'm a marriage celebrant and this program, you, are making me rethink it completely. So you can mark that up as a happy achievement. There you go. Very nice to talk to well, you. Well, interesting. Sorry, carry on. I was going to say, interestingly, I spoke to a few marriage celebrants while writing this book and there's a great deal of cynicism amongst marriage celebrants and a lot of them... I'm not very impressed with the men that women marry. <laughs> Good to talk to you. Clementine Ford talking about her book, I Don't the Case Against Marriage.